Hey everyone, welcome to Shrinks Talk Shop, a podcast where psychotherapists share their thoughts with you, and you don't have to be a therapist to listen and to learn. Shrinks Talk Shop is a product of On Good Authority, a provider of continuing education for mental health professionals. And I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credit they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of psychotherapy experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of those interviews with you. First, a quote from this week's speaker, Dr. Greg Niemeyer. It turns out that the intense fear of becoming fat is more related to a Western uh, issue. That is, anorexia in other cultures oftentimes does not, is not accompanied by a fear of, of fatness. And of course, historically, it absolutely wasn't. Um, you know, when, when um, you know, in the, in the, uh, the early days in, uh, in monastic contexts when you know, nuns uh, were fasting and, um, you know, uh, you know, for religious purposes and becoming, you know, absolutely anorectic, there, there was nothing, no psychological features about a fear, fear of fatness. The eating disorders that would have been eating disorders of adulthood. That's right. Are they separated by age in that way now? How's it, how's it organized now? You know, what they do is they actually just ignore the developmental distinction. Uh, so they don't say anything about age. Um, they uh, just have erased the line between the feeding disorders as, you know, as kid disorders and the um, eating disorders as adult disorders, and they just ignore that uh, developmental difference. They don't have any age specifications, and they just allow them to be, to appear where they appear and when they appear. And, um, and and they say nothing about it. They just combine them together into this one category of uh, feeding and eating disorders. Is it even a continuum or is it just – it doesn't sound like it's even a continuum. It's just sort of there. It's really there. It's really just there. Um, and, I, you know, I think uh, it, it's – I mean, there are other disorders, um, you know, that – the other categories of disorders that there's substantial, um, you know, sort of uh, – you know, age discrepancy or disparity uh, in relation to the, the disorders in those categories. But I'm not aware of any other category that has that the profound degree of divergence that the feeding and eating disorders do. There, you know, there's just there's like a yawning chasm that separates those two developmentally. But conceptually, now what they're arguing is that. Um, you know, we don't have to impose a limitation that the feeding disorders only uh, exist in childhood, and we don't have to insist that um, eating disorders only occur in adolescence or adulthood. You know, we will allow them to float to wherever wherever they may be. But again, I think um, in clinical practice, you know, eating disorders emerge very typically at the point that. Um, you know, people become socially just aware and conscious of, um, you know, of their bodies and the way in which they are viewed by other people. Um, you know, it's just like you're not going to get a body dysmorphic disorder uh, in, um, you know, in a, in a, in a preschooler. Um, you know, you, you, you don't come to that until you get to the developmental uh, point that you can decenter, see yourself as other people see you, and then make an appraisal of your appearance. 
and then you develop concern or alarm about that for, you know, whatever, you know, the, the feature or figure may be or your body size or image or whatever. So according to how you view it, your capacity for self-reflection, if you get to the point where you can view yourself as too fat or too thin or whatever. Yeah. I mean, before that, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, you can, uh, you know, you can see how kids in nursery school and, um, kindergarten and first grade uh, dressed to go to school. They, they don't have any problem putting, you know, plaid together with stripes. I mean, it's not a problem. There's no social consciousness and uh, they're not, they're, they're blissfully ignorant about uh, social consciousness in that regard. But there is a point uh, developmentally at which, you know, other kids make fun of you. They call attention to your appearance, to your weight, whatever it may be. And you begin then to scaffold an image of yourself in relation to the appraisal of others and, you know, therein lies you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, you, you become aware of and start to respond to the, the um, you know, the, the social perceptions of you by other people and, and the values that, that those perceptions carry. So, so in practice, you know, again, I think you just, you're not going to see a, a dramatic shift upward in the feeding disorders or downward in the um, eating disorders. I think in practice, they will still remain, the feeding disorders will remain largely in childhood and the eating disorders largely in adulthood. And it's possible that one, that one favorable out, outcome of combining them into a single category is that it might encourage more research on the connection between the two. Um, because there, you know, that is not a robust literature, but the literature that is there really suggests that there isn't much of a bridge that these, these kids who have restricted food intake disorders, they don't seem to, that doesn't seem to elide into anorexia uh, or bulimia, uh, you know, the, uh, rumination disorders, uh, you know, masticating uh, food excessively and uh, regurgitating it. That doesn't seem to have anything to do with bulimia uh, later on in life. So, you know, the research that's there is not really finding a conceptual or empirical link, um, but it you know, because they've always been separated um, and never the twain shall meet, it's, it's not a remarkably robust literature. Maybe this will help turn attention toward the, the bridge or common tie that binds those different disorders. Let's kind of race through the anorexia, bulimia, binge eating. What's the same and what's different uh, between the DSMs 4 and 5? Well, there's a, a couple of big differences uh, really um, in each of them. Uh, anorexia has always been controversial uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, from the very beginning, of course, it was laced with, um, you know, with analytic interpretation that it disabused itself of really, really profoundly in DSM-3, started in DSM, um, you know, in DSM-2. But, you know, I mean, the early conceptualization of anorexia as, um, you know, as the as a woman's fear of oral impregnation, um, you know, that could not be carried up realistically into, you know, the 1980s, 90s and 2000s. So so the, the disorders have undergone considerable change across time. In the case of anorexia, DSM-5 makes a couple of big changes um, and it, it resolves some controversies. There was a longstanding concern that... Um, that the the weight criteria the that a person is substantially below his or her uh, weight for their you know their body mass index for their you know age and and um, and size that was always a concern because it had in the DSM three three R four four TR 
it had a, 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 a an 85% criteria. And it wasn't actually a criteria, so this change is not actually as big as um, as it would otherwise appear, because in the in the previous DSMs three and four, the 85% was actually used as a guide. It wasn't a criteria per se, but it was stipulated. It was there in the text. The problem was um, that you know you could have say an anorectic woman who would um, you know she would fall down to 82% of her uh, you know her expected BMI and she'd get diagnosed as anorexia, and then you'd have a refeeding program, and she'd get up to 87%, and then she could no longer be diagnosed as anorexia. So you had this weird kind of pendulum swing, you know, now now they have it, now they don't. Uh, and, you know, it, it was, it was um, I mean, all the other processes uh, in uh, anorexia would remain completely intact and in place, but because the person gained weight, they could no longer qualify for that designation, you'd have to take them over into an NOS, you know, eating disorder NOS, EDNOS. Well, that was that was foolish, and and it wasn't that was not the intent. The intent was just to give a guideline so that the 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 words otherwise substantially below, you know, the expected uh, body mass index for somebody of that size and um, you know, an age. It, it the fear was if you didn't have an 85% in there or some example. You know, one person might regard substantially beneath the weight as five percent. Another person might may think it would have to be, you know, twenty-five percent. So they put the eighty-five in there because, you know, if you lose fifteen percent of your body mass, that's like a lot. Um, so it was really only ever intended as a heuristic, not as a criteria. But it was confusing, and um, and so they have dropped it, and they just have preserved the language without the uh, without the numbers. The other thing they dropped in anorexia is the requirement that you have a three um, month, three consecutive months of amenorrhea, the absence of, of menstruation in women. They've dropped that entirely, and they dropped it for two reasons, good reasons. Number one, uh, men can be anorectic, but they really can't menstruate. Uh, and number two is it's it's uh, menstruation is a secondary uh, consideration. Um, what what happens uh, with um, women with anorexia is they actually will use their periods as a red badge of courage that they when they get them it's a sign that they are not thin enough. Uh, you know when they lose their periods then they feel like they are gaining a little bit more control over their body and are successful. But the key thing is that the the capacity for menstruation is weight contingent. So if you have a weight criteria um, and you're substantially underweight. You really don't need, you know, uh, menses as an indicator. It's it's completely um, accounted for by the absence of weight. You get a low low enough body weight, you simply will lose your period uh, flat out. And uh, so it's 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 a criterion that doesn't really carry any weight. So they dropped it. Um, the one thing they preserved that was controversial remains controversial is um, an intense fear of becoming fat. It turns out that the intense fear of becoming fat is more related to a Western uh, issue. That is, anorexia in other cultures oftentimes does not is not accompanied by a fear of, of fatness. And of course, historically, it absolutely wasn't. Um, you know, when when um, you know in the in the, uh, the early days in, uh, in monastic contexts when you know nuns uh, were fasting and um, you know, uh, you know, for religious purposes and becoming, you know, absolutely anorectic, there there was nothing, no psychological features about a fear fear of fatness. Um, 
you know, there were you know other processes at work. So that was very controversial. It remains controversial because, you know, outside the U.S. and certainly outside of, uh, of U.S. and Europe, it's it, it is a much less common criteria. It's one of the reasons, and not the only one, that the DSM-4 Task Force on Culture actually recommended that anorexia be included as a culture-bound syndrome. Uh, they they made recommendations that that three disorders actually be were be designated as culture-bound syndromes, um, and uh, chronic fatigue was one, uh, and uh, you know anorexia uh, was a uh, you know was a second one, and um, and dissociative identity disorder uh, was a third. All of those recommendations by the culture task force were rejected um, uh, by the DSM. We're in the middle of an interview with Greg Niemeyer, and I'm Barbara Alexander from Shrink's Talk Shop, continuing our conversation. So the main criteria for anorexia is the self-starvation. It's the self-starvation. Um, so it's the self-starvation, um, substantially, being substantially below weight, um, fear of fatness, uh, distorted body image, and um, you know those features have remained. They do still have the two subtypes. They retained the sort of classic restricting type, person who's just you know severely uh, ritualistically restrictive. You know, we'll only eat, you know, uh, one half of a stalk of celery and two baby carrots for lunch and never the twain, you know, never deviation from that. So very substantial food uh, restraint and corresponding body uh, mass loss as a consequence. Um, So that's the classic restricting type. But there also is the uh, purging type. And and, uh, that remains as well. And they kept that as a separate type from the restricting because the um, they use a variety of different um, what they call validators um, and you know that that um, confirm or validate the the separateness or distinctiveness of different disorders and what they find is that those those two types of anorexia have different kind of prognoses and they have different kinds of comorbidity and the the worse of the two, the more intractable of the two, is the is not the restricting type. Actually, it's the um, it's the anorexia binge purging type. Seems to have more. They seem to have more impulse control. They seem to have control problems. They seem to have um, you know more comorbidity for uh, anxiety disorders, depression, for um, you know substance use, and again the impulsivity stuff around, uh, particularly around sexuality and. Uh, and, and gambling and other comorbid impulse control disorders is higher in that binge purging type. Um, so they've kept that as a, as a subtype as well. The the inclusion of that binge purging type, the separation of that from the um, you know from the restricting type, is a change that the DSM five keeps in relation to four, but it's a change in four from three because it used to be. That that was a an anorect that was an underweight bulimic a binge purging anorectic was actually conceptualized as bulimia but an underweight bulimic. Um, then they came along with DSM four and they said no 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 it's not an underweight bulimic it's an anorectic that is binging and purging. So um, in, in, on the theory that in a sense anorexia trumps bulimia it's the more serious that's the more significant so let's put it in anorexia and take it out of uh, bulimia. So the binge purge doesn't go under binge eating either? No, it doesn't. 
no, it, it does not. Because binge binge eating uh, disorder is um, you know is a horse of an entirely different color in a way. Uh, you know, the big thing there is there's just there is no purging and there is no compensatory uh, behavior. So there's no you know the 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 other non-purging compensatory behaviors are things like a diuretic use of diuretics, um, you know, excessive exercise, things that just compensate for the intake of any calories. Um, and uh, and so in a binge eating disorder, you have all the intake, but you don't have any, any expenditure. There's nothing designed to compensate for that caloric intake, and there's nothing you know there's no purging behavior to get rid of it. Uh, as a consequence, unlike bulimia. And unlike anorexia, the binge eating disorders uh, are commonly associated with people becoming overweight, um, not necessarily morbidly obese, but, you know, you know, if you just, and we're talking about, you know, we're talking about very substantial binges. We're, we're talking about, you know, not, not like uh, just supersizing your meal. Um, we're talking about uh, people who oftentimes will be eating, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 calories at a sitting. Um, so, and without any compensatory behavior or purging, you know, will not take long. Um, you know, when you figure the average caloric intake on a daily basis for, you know, most of us is in a couple thousand calorie range. Uh, you know, if you're quadrupling that or doing that tenfold uh, once or twice a week, it won't take long for you to pack on the pounds at 3,700 calories per pound. Um, so, you know, that that's, they tend then, unlike bulimics and unlike anorexics, anorexics obviously, uh, they tend to be, you know, overweight. So you can be overweight, but not bulimic or binging, but you can't have been binging and not be obese. Is that right? You can't have been binging and not be obese. Well, you, I mean, you could, you could start in the early stages of a binge disorder, binge eating disorder, you, you know, you may start not being uh, overweight. Um, it's interesting what the, 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 um, the precursor for bin, the you know, binge purge of bulimia and for binge eating disorders, the precursors seem to be a little bit different too. In, in binge eating disorders, usually what happens is the person binges before, um, you know, before they you know, start sort of out of uh, guilt and concern, get into dietary practices. Um, it's the other way around with a with a bulimic. Most bulimics start off dieting, uh, and then they you know they move into uh, you know into uh, the binging. So, uh, but binge eating disorder seems they they start with a binge. They you know dieting comes after the binging instead of before it. Uh, so it's a little bit different etiology. What's the difference then between bulimia and binging? Well, really, the the, the primary difference is, um, I mean, at a psychological level, not it's probably is probably not the, the biggest difference. It really is um, in bulimia, you've got some either purging behavior or some compensatory behavior, um, and it's it's marked. So it's like, um, you know, it's not it's not like um, you know I see myself as getting overweight, you know, so I make a resolution to go on a diet in, uh, you know, the first of the year, or, you know, I, uh, you know, go to the doctor, doctor says I'm overweight, you need to get on a, a weight reduction program. It's, it's really the massive intake, caloric intake gets compensated for it then, like the person binges and 
then they immediately go into the bathroom and, um, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, purge to get those calories out before they get absorbed, at least as much as possible. Or, you know, they'll, you know, go into the gym and, you know, work out for, you know, six hours, uh, literally sort of, uh, you know, as a kind of uh, penance or an attempt to undo. Um, whereas in binge eating disorder, they just, they just binge. Uh, they, you know, oftentimes will feel badly about it, um, but don't engage in any kind of uh, compensatory activity. It's still confusing the purging, binging, anorexic, and the bulimic that purges. That still is mixing me up. Well, and it is, it is a little confusing. It, really, the only difference between the only difference between the anorectic binge purger and the bulimic is weight. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're substantially underweight, then, and you're binging and purging, then you're going to get, you're going to be classified over as an anorectic with the binge purging subtype rather than remaining in the bulimic category. Most bulimics are normal weight or maybe even a little overweight, but not conspicuously. I mean, in anorexia, it's, Anorexia, uh, you are going to be visibly, conspicuously um, anorectic. Um, you would not know a bulimic to look at him or her in terms of body body size, which is why it can go underground for you know so many, 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 many years, and the person just sort of lives with it, and it's in no way, shape, or form conspicuous. You would notice the binge eating disorder over time uh, in the absence of the purging, but you know we have a third of our culture is. Literally, literally medically obese. So, you know, you can develop obesity in a variety of ways that don't have to do with a binge eating disorder. So you would notice that person was overweight, but you wouldn't know that it was necessarily due to a, a binge eating disorder. It could simply be supersizing every lunch at the fast food restaurant. So obesity is not a mental, would not be categorized in the DSM-5 as a mental disorder. Correct. Obesity is not a mental disorder, and you know, because you can you can get obese, you can become obese in a ton, a ton of ways. I mean, you can come become obese simply by not exercising. Um, you become obese by having, um, you know, a genetic predisposition to obesity. Uh, you can come to it through a variety of medical disorders or or aging. So there are lots of ways that are not that have nothing to do with mental disorders that you can develop. Obesity. Uh, there was discussion, uh, and it's discussion that actually occurred back in DSM-4 as well. There was serious discussion about the inclusion of another disorder, uh, eating disorder, um, that would tentatively have been called something like a compulsive overeating disorder. Um, and uh, and the idea there, and and there still is recognition and language that acknowledges this as a possible option. It would just get it would just get under, um, and it would be designated as an eating disorder, um, you know, other specified, the compulsive overeating. Um, the, the, the thing with the compulsive overeating disorder is that, um, I mean, a, a, a couple of things that on, this, on one hand validated, on the other hand, made them uh, reluctant to actually include it as official as an official diagnosis, is that um, in the compulsive overeating, unlike the anorectic and the bulimic, uh, and to some extent the binge eater, 
the compulsive overeater has largely a positive relationship to food. They're the kind of people who are, they're like maybe always grazing, always eating. When they're not, they're thinking about food, they're fantasizing about food. In bulimia and anorexia, these people, they have deep ambivalence about food. I mean, they, they, food is a, is a, is a, um, you know, is a very charged thing for them and it's not a positive valence. It's like if you take an anorectic and, you know, put them in a the context of a lot of food, they're profoundly uncomfortable. Same thing if you have a free feed smorgasbord kind of thing with a bulimic, um, you know, they're really uncomfortable and anxious in, in relation to uh, food and particularly in relation to their control over that food. Um, but that's not true with a compulsive overeater, just the opposite. They think very positively about food. They're always thinking about food. They're frequently grazing, uh, you know, not three meals a day, but, you know, but continuously eating. Uh, and, um, and so it's, so they are on the compulsive overeaters are unquestionably obese. They move very quickly into obesity. Um, and, uh, and so it, there was real discussion about, um, about the inclusion of a compulsive overeater as an as another category of disorder. And so you'd have anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, and compulsive overeating disorder. The problem is that, you know, uh, I mean, basically Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig, uh, you know, would be put out of business because all we would have millions and millions and millions of Americans diagnosed and poured into our healthcare system who were basically chronic overeaters. And, um, you know, we, we would, it would pathologize a huge um, segment of our society, and we would have to bear the healthcare costs of medical reimbursement. Uh, you know, instead of the you know ten dollar Weight Watchers fee per week, you'd be you know supporting a uh, you know one hundred and fifty dollar psychotherapy session. Um, so they actually decided, in a rare act of self-conscious consideration about the political and economic implications, which usually the DSM turns a deaf ear toward. I mean, they try not to let those broader things affect them. Um, but in this case, the feeling was that they would be bringing such a huge mass of people you know, into the category of, of mental illness that um, that it would not be sustainable. So, um, you know, you again, you can still diagnose something like compulsive overeating disorder, but you would have to put it in as a uh, eating disorder, um, other specified type. Dr. Niemeyer, I can't believe we've covered so much. Is there any final point that you'd like to make before we close? The only thing I would uh, emphasize is that, um, you know, just as the category of eating disorders has changed dramatically across time, uh, there's every reason in the world to believe that it's going to continue to morph as we move forward. I think there will be continued considerations of dimensionalizing the eating disorders, um, I think there'll be continued discussion about whether or not compulsive overeating or other forms of eating disorder are, you know, would warrant designation. So I think that, um, you know, much, much a sort of a holographic reflection of the DSM itself, the eating disorders category uh, has changed and probably will continue changing as we move forward toward DSM-6. Thank you so much, Dr. Niemeyer. Really appreciate this. Glad to do it. That was Greg Niemeyer, and I'm Barbara Alexander. Here's what's on tap for our next podcast. Trauma survivors are a unique population of clients representing nearly 80% of clients at mental health clinics and require special knowledge on behalf of their therapists. Post-traumatic growth 
is not about returning to the same life as it was previously experienced before the period of traumatic suffering, but rather it is about undergoing significant life-changing psychological shifts in thinking and relating to the world that contribute to a personal process of change that is deeply meaningful. Next week, we'll be joined by Lisa Ferenc, a recognized expert in the strength-based, depathologized treatment of trauma, who will discuss how she works with trauma survivors to embrace change, take healthy risks, and increase self-compassion. So next, we'll look at post-traumatic growth. So don't miss it. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. I hope you'll join me next week for that interview. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander thanking you for listening.